listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured Episode 207. In this episode, we are talking to Rebecca Dixon of National Employment Law Project about why Congress is once again failing to help millions of unemployed people as they struggle to survive through the pandemic and the ensuing economic crisis. But first, the news. Beyond the label that is stitched into the inner seams of our shirts and jeans, we know very little about where our clothes come from. We collectively consume billions of dollars in clothing, in fact, every year while barely acknowledging the millions of people across the global South who manufacture our clothing for pennies an hour. But now the pandemic has devastated the economies of many garment exporting countries as well as garment importing countries, and the workers who make our clothes are making their voices heard, confronting the fashion brands at the top of the supply chain and demanding that they pay them the wages they are owed. For months, labor and consumer groups have been pressuring brands like Walmart and Kohl's to pay for the clothing orders that have been placed with suppliers in countries like Bangladesh and Cambodia because the orders were wholly or partially fulfilled before the pandemic shut down retailers across the world. The factory workers, who are not directly employed by the brands, have been left destitute by the pandemic, both due to factory shutdowns as well as the failure of brands to pay for their pre-pandemic orders. And now the companies are reluctant to pay because retail outlets remain closed and they're sitting on huge amounts of unsold stock. The Clean Clothes campaign has been tracking the amount of wages owed to workers in several countries, and this week they launched the Pay Your Workers campaign to make it known to brands like Nike and H&M that their bill is coming due. I spoke to Inika Zeldenrust of the Clean Clothes campaign about why brands need to take responsibility for the poorest workers in their supply chains. What we estimated is that since the beginning of the COVID pandemic, so since March, uh, in the first three months, uh, uh, workers were cheated or underpaid uh, um, their wages at a level of around $5.8 billion uh, globally. And we've had received a lot of information from workers and from their organizations, cases that were reported to us and featured in our live blog at the Clean Clothes Campaign website, or that came in from our partners of workers we, who received only a part of their wages, or during lockdown periods, none of their wages at all. Or they were paid uh, after they returned, only a part of their bonuses or their outstanding wage. And what we've done in the first period of the pandemic is then it turned out that a lot of uh, garment brands and retailers also actually did not even pay for the orders that they had put in place with the employers. So we've done a lot of campaign work uh, together with Remake and others under hashtag pay up to make sure that the orders were paid. And now it's clear that even where orders are paid or even where companies have received loans or government support, Still, there is a big gap in in wage payment to workers. So we've now launched uh, Pay Your Workers. And we've said, look, brands, retailers, you need to make sure that where there are gaps left, you take responsibility and you make sure as the company that has profited a long time of these supply chains that these gaps are filled. Mm -hmm. So basically, the orders that were placed before the pandemic um, they were basically already fulfilled or were in the process of being fulfilled by these factories in faraway countries. Um, but the payment is not given until what the very end of the order or when the goods finally reach um, the retailers or um, how does it usually work with this supply chain and, and why do payments tend to come so late after workers have already done all this work? Yeah, it's the system is rigged in favor of indeed the the international buyer and at the detriment of the supplier. So often the supplier has to buy, for example, all the cloth and the thread and lease the building. And it is only uh, when the order, as you said, has been completed that uh, the supplier receives the funding. So they sort of advance the payment. At the same time, a lot of suppliers also do not normally pay their wages on time, right? So there's uh, uh, yeah, problems at both ends. But we felt after the pandemic hit, when a lot of retailers said, oh, we're not even going to fulfill this order, that that was to be the first phase of the campaign. 
Mm-hmm. Um, there have been some companies that have been pressured to pay up. Is that right? Um, is it uh, uh, like a number of a number of the bigger brands? Um, they did manage to pay. Why did they have a different policy? Uh, they paid indeed in the end the the suppliers, which is good, but also logical, right? We've also said it's a bit like if I'm ordering a pizza. Right? I can say, oh, now there's a pandemic and you're at the door with the pizza, but I don't want to pay it. Or even if I order online at H&M or others a garment, you know, even if my own uh, wages would have been cut during the pandemic or I get out of work, I'm still supposed to pay for the order. So, But we wanted to you know, show a signal to the suppliers that we understood that if they had you know, made these advanced costs, that it's logical that they, in some cases, cannot pay the wage bill. But right now, the pay-up campaign has motivated a lot of big brands to actually pay the employers. But it's even before the pandemic, it's always been the case that workers are paid uh, anyway too little, but also often too late, often are cheated out of wages. If factories are closed, they often don't receive their severance pay. So what we're now saying to the brand and retailers is, you have an additional obligation to make sure that you know there's enough money there to indeed pay the workers, that the supplier actually doesn't use that money for other purposes but uses it to pay the workers. And in cases where maybe you know there are still uh, uh, outstanding amounts or the factory has closed or the workers are left uh, with nothing, for decades you have profited of this, these workers in this supply chain, they were paid so little that they couldn't save. In many cases, you place your orders in countries that have no social safety net. So it can't come as a surprise to you that right now these people are, are truly desperate. I mean, they are left with debts. Most of them are in debt anyway. They use the money that they earn at the end of the month to pay those debts. They can't pay them. They are in many cases, they were already low on their ability to feed their family. Right now, that is truly, they are in difficulty. And these are workers in some of the most profitable supply chains on the planet. And, you know, some brands are selling less now because of, you know, retail shops that have closed. But others like online retailers or, um, you know, they're doing very well. A lot of these companies have huge reserves or, you know, are owned by billionaire families who could resolve this issue very quickly if they would want to. Yeah. Um, Your report um, about the wage gap, I think most of the research seems to go up through uh, May. Has the situation with COVID-19 changed either, um, you know, on the retail side or in these countries where the workers live? Um, are, Are the workers going back to work or the factories all reopened now? Um, and I guess, you know, we're seeing some shopping and retail come back um, in, you know, in, in, uh, in some of the places that they export to. Um, so I, I don't know, are, is, the, is the economic situation changing uh, for garment manufacturing? Yeah, it is, but it's, it's a moving target, uh, as we all know, and it differs from country to country. So in quite a lot of places, factories have reopened. Not always actually safely because, you know, the pandemic, of course, hit at production country level as well. And you can't do social distancing in a garment factory. Um, orders have started to be placed back in, but also yeah, hesitantly. I mean, I'm based in Amsterdam, the Netherlands, and we just were told the next three weeks uh, um, to start staying inside again. So there is still this necessity to build much better social protection and safety nets, but of course also the necessity to at least for the period uh, uh, March, say, until now, make sure that that gap is filled and to do a good monitoring role and pay a premium part of our demand also is to say to brands, look, of all new orders, the orders that you place now, where it has reopened, you should pay premium on top of that, put that into a fund, and that fund should be used for cases where factories close or workers are dismissed or back wages aren't paid. And then you build up a guarantee fund, as it's called, that can handle uh, the shocks to the system that we all need to expect to continue to happen in uh, uh, the short to medium term. 
So it's, you know, taking the measures now to protect the people making your products going forward and deliver remedy to, you know, some of the most vulnerable workers in very rich supply chains that have been uh, cheated out of what were, you know, poverty wages to begin with. Yeah. Um, it seems like the uh, the pandemic has kind of exacerbated these structural problems that um, existed, you know, that were sort of baked into the garment manufacturing system. Um, I mean, you know, presumably the pandemic will one day subside, but those problems will still be there. I mean, are there long-term reforms in the garment manufacturing sector that can make sure that um, workers are not completely devastated when a global crisis like this happens? I mean, you talked about how these countries have no social safety net and, you know, many of the suppliers are, you know, operating on such thin margins that, you know, uh, everything breaks down when a payment is missed. So um, what, what can be done sort of throughout the supply chain to make sure that uh, workers are more resilient and can um, face crises like this yeah, in the future. Yeah, yeah absolutely. The, the spotlight sh- that, you know, the pandemic shines indeed exposes uh, um, that, of course, this was a supply chain that was structured out of a search almost of moving production also from places that had, you know, social safety nets or better wages to locations that don't have them. And it's in a way very simple what needs to be done, right? There needs to be, living wages need to be paid. And it needs to be, brands need to take responsibility for their workers, even when they don't directly employ them, and negotiate contracts that enable wages to be living, social security premiums to be paid into a good well-governed system and factories to be safe. Now, the question then comes up, of course, what if you are in a country that doesn't have such a well-governed system, right? Who, who are the employers then supposed to be premiums to? And as a campaign, we understand that problem and we're ready to work and negotiate agreements together with the trade unions and companies and say, look, let's negotiate an agreement that will create a temporary solution as I was just talking about for, say, severance, but at the same time, use some of that money out of those funds to stimulate and set up and work with governments to build uh, uh, social protection and safety nets in the countries where they are presently outsourcing to. That was Ina Gazeldenrust of the Clean Clothes Campaign. Gig workers have been some of the hardest hit during the pandemic, and that seems unlikely to change anytime soon. But in an indication of what might be possible in terms of regulating these companies, we got news last week that Seattle's premium pay law, which mandates an extra $2.50 per order for drivers at food delivery gig companies like DoorDash and Postmates for the duration of the emergency order put in place to respond to the pandemic, is paying off. DoorDash and Postmates combined just paid out over $350,000 in restitution to drivers for improperly paid hazard pay. Specifically, according to Eater Seattle, DoorDash paid $111,435 to 2,998 workers in Seattle, while Postmates paid $250,515 to 2,975 workers. Workers had made complaints to Seattle's Office of Labor Standards that they were not receiving their pay, and the OLS inquiry resulted in this agreement with the companies to pay those workers their back pay with interest. According to the organization Working Washington, which worked on passing the law, this is, quote, the first ever labor standards enforcement action by government that actually moves money from gig company bank accounts into gig workers' pockets. Rachel Lauder, executive director of Working Washington and the Fair Work Center, said in a statement, quote, the city is making clear to these multi-billion dollar delivery companies that they're not above the law. Our worker protections are only as good as our ability to enforce them. And Seattle is demonstrating once again why we're a national model for enforcing labor standards, end quote. What would it look like to establish something like this around the country and make it permanent? 
Gig companies argue that their workers like the freedom provided by the app, but the workers often complain of impenetrable pay rates that fluctuate randomly, an inability to actually control their own workloads, and of course, very little protection when something goes wrong. But with guaranteed decent minimums, could the work be improved? Eater reported, quote, third party companies pushed back aggressively against Seattle's hazard pay bill. The extra pay per delivery was intended to be $5, not $2.50, and would have included ride hailing services such as Uber and Lyft. But the number was reduced after negotiations among city lawmakers, third party delivery services, and the labor organization Working Washington. Ride hailing apps were excluded because Mayor Jenny Durkin is currently working with those companies on more permanent pay minimums. In a statement back in June, a rep for DoorDash said the Seattle law would reduce earning opportunities for drivers and hurt restaurants at the worst possible time. Around the same time, Instacart had threatened to abandon the Seattle market if the hazard pay bill passed. Three months later, the app is still available here. End quote. So the companies aren't going broke and the workers are marginally more protected. It's a start. Though the pandemic has dominated our politics lately, The number one issue for many voters is the economy and jobs, and Trump has been stumping across the Rust Belt, trying to make the case that he's a champion of the working man who is leading the economy towards unprecedented prosperity. A new study by the Groundwork Collaborative, Policy Matters Ohio, and the Century Foundation looked into the many promises that Trump has made to manufacturing workers over his first term, and shockingly, Trump's boasts about how he would bring jobs back from abroad, fix our trade rules, and revive the Rust Belt have not actually been realized. In fact, by many measures, blue-collar manufacturing jobs in the Midwest have suffered significant declines under Trump's tenure, even before the pandemic. Trump's tax cuts have also exacerbated the income inequality that has hit the Midwest hard. And now that the coronavirus has sent the entire economy on sort of a death spiral, mass unemployment is compounding the erosion of the manufacturing sector, and deregulatory policies are further destabilizing working-class communities. The report found that 1 million manufacturing jobs in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, and Wisconsin have been hemorrhaged over the last three decades. Additionally, quote, COVID-19 destroyed a further 140,000 net manufacturing jobs in these states. And as of July, there were 2 million 223,000 manufacturing jobs in the four states, wiping out eight years of progress since the Great Recession, unquote. In addition, the wage premium that manufacturing workers have historically enjoyed, that is, the additional amount in wages that they earn compared to other jobs, has shrunk down from about $3.72 an hour in 2000 to an additional $2.74 in 2019. The report also notes that some of the boutique projects aimed at reviving manufacturing in the region have in many ways failed. For instance, in Racine, Wisconsin, the Taiwanese multinational Foxconn got a huge tax break for building out a venture there, but it ultimately failed to deliver on the jobs that were promised. The closure of the General Motors Lordstown, Ohio assembly plant also underscores that the export of jobs facilitated by corporate-friendly trade policies has continued unabated despite Trump boasting about wrangling Mexico and Canada into the U.S. MCA deal. Moreover, the researchers concluded that the four Great Lakes states have all seen their trade deficits grow in recent years under the Trump administration in major exporting industries. And they conclude that truly rebuilding Midwest manufacturing jobs is going to require a lot more than flashy investments in corporate tax breaks. It actually requires a fair tax code and an investment in public services and training so that workers can not only get new jobs, but good jobs. In the United Kingdom, the furlough scheme, where the government paid the wages for employees if companies would agree to keep them on payroll, is coming to an end, and Chancellor Rishi Sunak has announced a new plan to keep workers in jobs this week, one that includes something about shorter working hours. I asked economist and friend of the show, James Meadway, to tell us about the plan. Okay, so this is um, the announcement made last week by the the Chancellor of the Exchequer here, Rishi Sunak, that the furlough scheme, the job retention scheme, which has been in operation since earlier this year, arrived about the same time as lockdown arrived in Britain, uh, intended as a mechanism to basically support people self-isolating so that you didn't have to go to work, you'd stay at home and the government would pay up to 80% of your salary. And there was a cap on how much they pay him, but it was 80% of your salary, basically to not work, uh, which is uh, an extraordinarily uh, generous by the usual standards of the British state thing, and, and certainly by the standards of the Conservative um, government. And at its peak, you're talking, God, it's about 9 million people 
using this thing back at, by, by the time we got to June or so uh, in, in the depths of lockdown. Now, now, this is expensive. I mean, total spending by the government on coronavirus and everything that this involved, additional healthcare, PPE, all that sort of thing. It's about £190 billion pounds as of, of the start of September. Um, on top of my head, the furlough is about £40 billion, all told. So it's, it's, a, it's a huge intervention. Right? It's, the, it's basically the biggest intervention uh, in the economy in peacetime that any government in Britain has, has ever done, the biggest sort of single thing that, that's ever been attempted. Um, and because of this, and because the, the initial thinking, I think quite genuinely, if you look at what government was talking about and, and how they were trying to think about coronavirus was that we'd get through the initial shock of lockdown and the fact that the thing had run out of control uh, from February into March. I mean, really run out of control. This is why we've got one of the worst death rates in the world in Britain. The government basically, I mean, it's generous to say they were asleep on the job. What, what they actually did was take a view that they didn't need to do very much. That seems to be fairly obviously the case. They then kind of had to do this panic extended lockdown. So you end up with a very bad situation where you have a virus out of control, lots of deaths, and a very big economic hit. Um, but because the thinking was that you'd take this hit, you'd do the shock of lockdown, and then everything would kind of get back to normal, the original plan was to wind down the furlough scheme gradually so that by October it would be all gone and everybody would just be back working as normal. So, so in other words, we put everything into hibernation. You kind of freeze everything as it is, or a great chunk of the economy. And then when you unfreeze it, everything's back to normal. Um, the two problems with that that became increasingly apparent over the summer, uh, particularly as lockdown started to ease and the restrictions and what people could do were, were being eased, was that first, the virus isn't going away, that, that it's very clear that this thing is here for, for a, you know, a reasonably long period of time, at least. And, and, and frankly, most likely, it's going to be a sort of permanent feature one way or the other. Um, management consultants McKinsey were sort of saying optimistically by the end of next year we might have a vaccine everything will look a bit more normal that's a really optimistic version of this so the virus isn't going away and at the same time the economic shock from uh, lockdown meant that unemployment was still rolling on so unemployment has been creeping up or creeping up really shooting up for, for some period of time there was a huge uh, economic shock from this and therefore you couldn't just have everyone marching back to work because there'd be no jobs and unemployment go through the roof so the plan from the government after a lot of sort of dithering and delay uh, they, they managed to get this scheme out last week which basically says uh, and it's and we can talk about this it's a it's a peculiar thing it's kind of headline is that the government will subsidize short-time working in other words Instead of you having to work for the entire full-time period that you'd normally be expected to turn up for, you will be able to work um, a third or more of your hours up to full-time, and the government will subsidise some of the cost of that. They'll pay uh, a part of the cost. So it looks like it's designed to kind of limit unemployment, deal with this kind of collapsing demand that's happened uh, as a result of the, the lockdown, uh, and, and compensate for that by saying to people, OK, we don't expect you to be working all the time, but you can keep your job. And we'll pay. We'll cover the cost of you not being able to work full time. So that's the kind of headline message on it. Um, the, the reality of the thing is quite weird. There is a government subsidy in there, um, but the way it works out is that, it, as was fairly rapidly pointed out by people, the way it works out is is that it actually ends up more expensive for your employer to have you working part time uh, under the scheme than if you weren't under the scheme, because the government's expectation is that basically if you work a third of your usual hours, you get paid for that third, the remaining two thirds of your pay, the government will pay half of that and your employer pays half of that. So in other words, the government is subsidising some of this, but your employer is still paying your initial pay plus a fair chunk of the time you're not working. So it actually makes it really quite expensive for an employer's point of view to keep someone in this scheme to the point where, as Resolution Foundation on the think tanks here said, it's cheaper to simply employ one person full time than it would be to employ two people half time. So in other words, this isn't like we're going to kind of reduce the amount of time they're working to have more jobs. It's doing something a lot weirder. It doesn't appear to be designed with that in mind. Ah, so you're telling me that they took something that was a good idea and then screwed it up. Yes. Yeah. The short version <laughs> is it is a good idea to have people on short time working. It is. It's not just a, a good idea for uh, – and this is – possibly one of the more interesting things Sunak said in, in many ways last week. It's not just a good idea for now with this kind of immediate shock of the crisis, because we're in the very early stages of this. There are permanent changes needed to the economy as a result of this. And a good permanent change may well be everybody working less. You know, if you just work fewer hours and one of the, our aims in life for the next 12 months at least is to reduce the amount of social contact we'll have, this is a good thing. 
if you're going to work less, you have less opportunity to either contract the virus or spread it to someone else. That's the that's the crew part of it. So it's actually quite good to just have lots of people uh, working part time. So so that that this is all good. The scheme they've ended up with doesn't really do that. What it, what it appears to do, the only way it really sort of works is that if you're yeah, kind of quite a well-paid, skilled worker of some sort, you're, you're maybe I'm trying to think of a job, you're an engineer, let's say, and you, you've been in the job a while, you've been trained on the job, the employer has quite a lot of investment in you as a person, it, it kind of introduces an incentive potentially to keep that person on. What it doesn't do anything for, and this is where the real economic impact has been felt over the last few months is loads and loads of basically much lower paid, much more sort of temporary work. So if you think of all the people in hospitality, right, this is a, a basically low paid, I'm not going to say it's low skilled, uh, I don't think that's true, but it's, it's a low paid part of the... <laughs> Having done that work, definitely not well, Exactly, you've got a whole load of things we call low skilled that just aren't. Care work isn't low skilled, cleaning isn't low skilled, right? So you just sort of casually get described with this. But if you, what they mean really is that the kind of processes of formal training, perhaps, that, that, that you might need for some jobs aren't there in the same way. Um, but if you're in one of these occupations, your employer has few incentives to keep you on through this new scheme, right? It's really got no incentive at all, or next to no incentive. Um, so it's not going to do anything, really, or next to nothing, for great chunks of people who are working in some of the sectors most effective. Hospitality is the really, really obvious one here whilst it's protecting a bunch of people who actually probably not done too badly throughout the crisis so far. Yeah. Yeah. So how do we, as the broad left labor movement, whatever we want to call ourselves here, um, think about both the admissions that are contained in, in this announcement from Sunak and to plan for and push for something better? I think there's a two well, it's a really good sort of question because it's kind of the, the the problem that we're running into that that the default setting on the left and it was right to argue for lockdown the the initial lockdown was something we had to do, but it's an emergency measure it's that we have lost control of the virus in this country. this is absolutely what happened i mean it's, you had to do quite a hard lockdown uh, and therefore you also had to introduce a furlough scheme and support for people who were trying to socially isolate. You can't just say you're not allowed to work, you're not going to get paid for it you've got to do something. That's the first part. We should have done the lockdown to the point where the virus was actually suppressed. We didn't. We started to ease it too quickly. But now we're in a world where this virus is going to be a, at least a semi-permanent feature of life. We need to think of how we adapt what we're doing to that, not say, OK, we'll just do another lockdown and then hold it on for longer. We, we can't keep doing this. There are obvious costs to lockdown. I don't just mean the economic costs in certain sense. I mean, you can say you shouldn't care too much about GDP if you're saving lives, and it's just clear. But there are mental health impacts. There's, there's all sorts of other sort of social impacts. Keeping kids out of school is not good for education. These things are not good. We're going to have to find some way to work with a world in which the virus is there, but to do so in a way that's fair. And what you get with this government is, is a recognition that they're probably going to have to kind of adapt to this, but they're not going to make it fair. So, so there's a challenge for everybody on the left that how do we think about doing this? Um, the, the obvious sort of public health measures are we need effective contact tracing and testing, which we've never had. And it was an extraordinary thing over the summer that you had a bit of a respite. The government didn't make all efforts necessary to get this up and running. They, they've done this stupid privatised scheme. They've got somebody in charge of it who has no frankly, experience of, of you know, sort of medical uh, health and big logistical things. And, uh, and it's, it's been an absolute farce um, that, that's happened here. And it's actually, it's another thing that's going to cost lives somewhere down the line. But the second bit is, we probably also need to talk about, well, how do we make workplaces safe? Yes. So how do you get PPE if you need it? How do you get lots of cleaning if you need it? How do you make social socially distanced work, workplaces happen. But also, we probably just need people working less. If we have more working from home and shorter working time, then you're reducing contact. And that's something we can do uh, looking ahead. So it's, it's, it's a lot of things that the left was already talking about, but we have to make it apply to the specific situation we're in. Right. And so from there, I guess we uh, go on and and continue to have this conversation that says okay, this, but it's not going to work. I, I feel like this is sometimes the problem, right? Is that this will be, if this does not work, people will sort of point to it and say, shorter hours isn't a good idea because this didn't work. There's a risk here, um, that, but I think it's it's probably not going to play out as shorter hours so much as like basically some jobs are somewhat more protected than others. Right? So you end up with a, a two-tier or, or maybe several tiers, but certainly a two-tier labour market with the government overtly intervening to keep one tier protected. And another tier, which is you know, 
uh, somebody who's on a temporary contract in hospitality, say, is completely left unprotected, which is the other demand that has to be raised here. That they're, they're already talking about they, they marginally increase the absolutely dreadful uh, sort of universal credit welfare payments that you get if you're unemployed uh, in, in this country. They increase it by twenty pounds or something. It's like it's feeble relative to what was needed. Um, so there has to be a clear demand about we've got to make the welfare state work properly and it has to be comprehensive and it has to be paying at a level that if you can't work, you can survive on this. I'm not saying you're going to live a life of luxury or whatever, but there's at least a, a need to survive there. So a demand like UBI, universal basic income, is an obvious one because it's comprehensive. It covers all eventualities. It, it gives people that sort of minimum security they need to actually kind of function through something like this. Uh, and that, I think, would be a useful demand for the left to be, left to be raising. That was economist and writer James Meadway, and you will find a link to his article on this subject over at dissentmagazine.org slash belabored. Ruth Bader Ginsburg died last week, and the Republican Party, which has been sitting on its hands for months now, suddenly jumped into action to put forward a new nominee for the Supreme Court. Yet they still seem completely uninterested in doing anything for the millions of people who have lost jobs, income, and security during this pandemic and attendant economic crisis, to say nothing of all those state budget crises. So rather than wargaming the Supreme Court battle, which we're sure you've had enough of by now, we're taking this opportunity to discuss the ongoing unemployment situation and Congress's utter unwillingness to act with Rebecca Dixon, executive director of the National Employment Law Project and unemployment insurance expert. So let's start off with basically, can you lay out the situation in the U.S. right now for our listeners? Updated jobs numbers come out on Friday, I know, but what do you expect to see? Sort of what's the overall employment and unemployment picture right now? Right now, what we're seeing is um, that we had lost 22 million jobs. And the last jobs report, we gained some of those jobs back, but we still have a jobs deficit of 11.5 million jobs. And so the the numbers are really impacted by the pandemic and in the locations where we see there being an uptick in the pandemic, um, jobs that had come back, places are having to shut back down. So I think we're going to see some job gains, but nothing dramatic. Yeah, and I suppose it's hard to tell as it goes up and down what that's going to look like, you know, a month from now. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the the first package that was passed by Congress, the expanded unemployment that's now expired. Um, what did that do to help people and what happened when it ran out? So it was a really tremendous boost um, and, and really remarkable and I, I think a, a fitting response to the level of devastation that we were seeing and are still seeing. Um, so an additional $600 a week really moves the average benefit up to about the average uh, wage in, in the United States. And so without that benefit, we have some states where the maximum payout is as low as $235 a week, and that's for the high earners in that state. So you're looking at a benefit that may only be about $100. And so when you add $600 to that, that really does make it more possible for folks to buy food, to pay their rent, and to meet other basic needs. Um, so it's been vital uh, to, to actually keeping families afloat. And so that $600 extra payment ran out a little while ago, and so far nobody stepped up to replace it. Right, right. I think, you know, at its core, our actions telegraph our priorities. And so the fact that Congress hasn't been able to agree on anything to help um, these families um, is pretty striking. Um, and I mean, the fact that it is, you know, uh, on the heels of an election where they are going to be judged by voters, um, you would think that they would be working um, much harder and not taking, you know, recess when they haven't done the people's business. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about sort of where people are suffering the most, right? Like which industries have been hit the hardest in terms of layoffs, firings, the potential for those jobs not to ever come back? Um, and which parts around the country are we seeing that um, 
we obviously we know that always that black and brown workers tend to be hit the hardest when it comes to unemployment, that their numbers tend to be, you know, much, much higher than white people. But like specifically, I want to talk a bit about where and how people are feeling this. Right. We we are really seeing um, in in the industries where these workers are concentrated. So restaurant industry, hospitality, um, places where the pandemic um, and, you know, um, concerns about safety are making it so that even if a locality or a state has reopened, uh, consumers don't feel comfortable coming back. And so we're seeing these jobs and we're seeing small businesses going under. And I think um, it's important to, to mention that one of the factors around who can't work right now is that um, lots of folks who are in higher paying jobs are actually able to telework. And we know that black and brown workers have a much lower ability to telework. And, you know, in fact, we've seen um, about 15% of workers uh, in the United States were teleworking before COVID. And now that's up to 50%. Yeah. So you can see that that's excluding a large swath of workers who don't have that ability, um, but, you know, would, but don't have that ability sometimes because their position doesn't um, comply with that. And sometimes just because employers don't trust them um, when they can't see what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, I've been working from home in some fashion since 2011. And so I watching, you know, everybody else shift to this has kind of been interesting. But so the House introduced an updated version of the HEROES Act this week. So what's new in this one that they're putting forward? Sure. So they are moving to restore the $600 a week that we talked about earlier and to make it retroactive to September the 6th um, and um, to make sure that it goes through January 31st. Um, and, and that's not perfect um, because we would ideally need um, those benefits to be connected to the economy and so mm -hmm. that they would just sort of automatically start to ramp down. Um, but that is important to make sure that families get those benefits. Um, and not really new, but I think super important is this mandate to have an occupational safety and health uh, enforceable standard. I think it's important for your listeners to know that right now workers do not have any a way to enforce any right to PPE or social distancing or any other safety measure, um, you know, in a, on a national basis. There are state and local laws that provide that, but the majority of the country, there is no enforceable right to that. So there is the CDC issued guidelines, but those are advisory. They are not mandatory. Yeah. And so this is in some ways a, a streamlined version of the previous HEROES Act that was already passed through the House, right? Right, right. It does focus in on um, several priorities that are most urgent and, you know, really tries to uh, meet the White House part of the way in terms of bringing down the cost. So you do see um, the House really trying to uh, come to the negotiation table in a way that is serious, um, that matches the need. Um, so, so matches the need to get something done. Right. So with the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and I don't want to ask you to sort of war game out the Supreme Court, because that's just a whole other mess that we will leave to other people's podcasts. Um, but we do see how quickly the president and Republicans in the Senate can act when they actually make something a priority. Um, so what are the odds that we see that the Senate actually acts to do something for working people that is not solidifying their power on the Supreme Court, um, perhaps before the election? Well, you know, it's like we talked about, like our actions really do show what our priorities are. And it's really unconscionable that they are, you know, working to fast track um, and pull together votes for this unacceptable nomination, um, you know, right on the heels of the election um, when early voting is already in progress. Um, and it shows that 
you know, their priorities are misplaced. Um, and there really needs to be a people first focus to how to handle this. And that would mean stopping the nomination process and resuming it after um, the voters have spoken. We know that um, millions of people participate in movements um, and are uh, fighting for and pushing for racial and civil and gender and reproductive rights and LGBT issues, disability, voting, workers' rights. Um, and they're following in the footsteps of the folks who've come before them. And they're going to continue to protest and organize and push um, and fight this nomination. Um, so it's not, you know, it's not going uh, through with no resistance for sure. Um, but, <clears throat> you know, it doesn't look like you know, from from a sort of vote standpoint, that there's a whole lot that can be done to stop it. But we definitely um, know that this is not what's best for the country. Um, the nominee um, has shown herself to be someone who will not stand up to powerful corporate, corporate interests um, and won't uphold the rule of just law to protect uh, the Constitution and put people first. So when you're thinking about uh, the cases that come before the court that are really about workers, um, this nomination would just further entrench this anti-worker pro-corporations land to the Supreme Court that we've been seeing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what do you think, I mean, this is obviously I'm asking you to get in Mitch McConnell's head, which is impossible, but what do you think the political calculations are that they're making that they can just kind of get away with not doing anything to help people right now when, when things are obviously as bad as they are? I, you know, I think that there is um, definitely a way in which right now uh, the country has been somewhat shielded from the full impact of allowing these uh, important supports to lapse, right? So when you have um, like moratoriums on evictions and you have um, in some localities and states uh, moratoriums on utility payments, uh, families are protected in some way, um, not all of them, um, but it does sort of just delay the inevitable. And there's not been a real movement to actually provide funds to pay the rent that is piling up. And so it's some ways kicking the can down the road. But I think the fact that it's that the disaster that we're about to see is kind of hidden um, has made it easier for McConnell to um, not take action. Yeah, that's a really good point, because obviously, you know, we saw what happened with the, the sort of slow moving foreclosure crisis and eviction crisis. Um, after the 2008 financial crisis. And this has the potential to, in some ways, just be a lot faster, a lot more. And that's, that's definitely not going to be good for anyone. But yeah, it is, is kind of disturbing that because only so many people are hurting. And I'm sure some of it has to do with which people are hurting the most right now and which people the Senate cares about. Right. I, and I think, too, like the other piece is that some folks who um, were working in jobs that paid uh, better wages are also probably whittling through their savings. Right. Um, in this country, uh, workers and families are really, um, you know, they're very resourceful. And so people are tapping their savings and they're probably um, selling what they can sell and in some cases moving in with family members. So, so people are doing what is possible in their own power um, to, you know, to stay afloat. And, and I think rather than, um, rather than punish them for that, <laughs> Congress should actually be uh, taking action uh, to make it easier for them to get back on their feet. When we think about the way that like, First, more women went to work, and then everybody took out more credit cards and home equity, and then housing equity was destroyed with the 2008 crisis, and people took on third jobs, and just the way that things keep getting piled on, and people are expected to cope. Um, it's really, it's just heartbreaking. <laughs> just, oh. Yes, yes. And, and uh, you know, lots of people in the recession tapped into or uh, cash out their 401k um, to stay afloat. 
and you know one of the few bright spots in the economy which is completely divorced from most of our realities is the stock market and so those folks are not you know they're also not going to be like the majority of Americans yeah. not going to be reaping any kind of benefit from that yeah and it's the stock market has just become even more divorced from most people's lives than it ever was right it's it's a really stark um commentary on inequality in this country um, because there are, you know, folks who are, uh, you know, millionaires in the top 1% who are making money um, from this tragedy and lots of other folks who are just hanging on by a thread. <sighs> yeah. So earlier in today's episode, I spoke with British economist James Meadway about this new plan that the UK government has put forward about subsidizing shorter working hours. Um, and it's not it's a far from perfect, but um, the U.S. plan was kind of just let everybody get laid off and then subsidize unemployment. Um, but do you think that there's space and we should be talking about other ways to um, keep people in work, to subsidize um, some form of, of, you know, changed working schedule, things like that that would make this more equitable rather than you know, just massive amounts of people working at home and then massive amounts of people not working at all? Well, in the in the CARES Act and the other <clears throat> relief bills that were passed, there is a, a program called work sharing, which um, is uh, administered by the unemployment insurance agencies in the states. And what it does is rather than laying off a lot of people, an employer is able to spread the hours reductions across those folks, and then they can apply for unemployment insurance to make up some of the difference. So it does keep folks connected to their jobs and their um, their livelihoods, and it helps employers to actually hold on to talent um, until things um, improve. So that's a piece that is already available. Um, and, you know, we are calling on all the states to make that an option for employers um, to be able to use in this key and critical moment. And I, uh, I mean, the election is terrible, but, um, but in terms of going forward, because this is obviously a long-term crisis um, and these unemployment protections are going to be needed and, and some of these job sharing programs and things like that are going to be needed for a while. Um, are we seeing any sort of acknowledgement of that coming from anywhere during this election cycle? I mean, I'm talking about like House candidates, Senate candidates, anybody that's saying anything interesting, um, any place that you're seeing like new ideas coming in. I'm seeing it more in the context of the champions that we have in Congress who are um, and have been tuned in to the needs of working people. So whether or not it's got any bearing on the election, there actually are folks introducing legislation um, that would make uh, comprehensive structural changes to the unemployment insurance system in the U.S. Because, you know, one of the reasons that Congress needed to come in with the CARES Act and and add all of these things to UI, so increase the benefit amount and to extend it to um, to folks who are, uh, you know, like gig workers or self-employed workers is because those were big gaps, longstanding gaps in the program. And so there, there are bills in Congress now that would actually close those gaps and, you know, actually create a federal standard because there is no federal minimum amount um, of UI that workers can expect. And so it really does depend on geographically where you're located. And we know that in the Southern states, which um, is where the majority of Black workers live, um, the benefits are not as um, are not as comprehensive and the programs um, are much more strict in terms of of who is allowed to access it. And so those folks are automatically afforded less protection than say someone who lives in the Northeast or in the West. And, you know, that's just unacceptable. And so there are folks in Congress who are working on that. There is no um, standard amount of weeks of benefits that are available to workers. So, you know, we've seen benefits as low as 12 weeks in some states when the, the standard 
that states were meeting before the last recession was 26 weeks. And in their intervening years, we did see some of them cut those back, 10 states cut those weeks. And so there, there's legislation in Congress that would make that the standard, that there would be 26 weeks. So there, there are these structural issues in the program um, that the CARES Act has sort of patched um, that need to have a permanent fix. Yeah. Yeah. And those are the same states where the government's response to the pandemic was like, your grandma will die for the economy. Thinking of the Texas lieutenant governor there. Yeah. Just um, just appalling. <laughs> just really appalling. Um, but I guess not because it's kind of in line with, um, you know, a long history of, uh, you know, of business first in, in those states. Yeah. And business first and, and knowing which workers are going to get this get hurt by this first. Exactly. Um, so what can people who are listening to this do in terms of finding out more about some of these bills that you've mentioned, um, pushing for support for expanded unemployment um, and thinking about how this connects to the organizing people are, are probably already doing around the election? One of the things they can do is visit NOLPS. Um, we have a website that is uh, just aimed at uh, unemployed workers and providing them resources and also uh, a way to engage. So there's a way that they can link up with um, with other workers who are pushing and fighting. Um, and there are folks who are still uh, in this uh you know, in this struggle and pushing for Congress to take action. Um, and so I think that that linking up to those fights that are underway is uh, one of the most important things um, that folks can do. Um, and, you know, you know, holding their own representatives uh, in Congress accountable um, and letting them know um, what is needed. Excellent. Excellent. We'll put a link to that at the Descent website. I think that's everything I had, unless there's anything else that you think I missed that we should talk about. No, I think that that really does cover it. (sighs) I know, right? Can we we handle any more of this um, really bad news? I guess one thing I would say is that I am hopeful. Even in this moment, I am incredibly hopeful that this this downturn and medical crisis is an opportunity. Uh, to actually see, uh, you know, without rose-colored glasses, that we have a very porous social insurance system and to do something to shore it up and that this pandemic is going to touch enough people that the will to do that will actually be present. And, and, you know, in the last time that we had a downturn this bad for the New Deal, something was done. It was done in a way that excluded lots of categories of workers of color. And so I'm also hopeful that in this moment, it won't exclude workers of color, that their needs will be centered in what is past, and that we will find a way to include uh, our workers who are undocumented, who are important to this economy and are left out of everything. So I am very hopeful that this moment will allow us to actually, you know, uh, fulfill the promise of, of, you know, how we see and, and experience America. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. That was Rebecca Dixon from the National Employment Law Project. And we just have one little update. There is actually a new website for NELP's Unemployed Worker Project, which is unemployedact.com. That's unemployedact.com. And we will put links as usual to that website, as well as Rebecca's work and NELP's other projects at descentmagazine.org slash belabored. And now it's time for ARG. I wish I'd written that. Where we talk about a piece that we read and liked and alas did not write. My pick for ARG is Employers Are Spying on Remote Workers in Their Homes by Stephen Hill at InTheseTimes.com. Since the 1960s, there has been a slow, steady march towards telework and flex time. Working from home has been seen as the ultimate replacement for the traditional office. 
And the pandemic has put this long-running trend of flexible work arrangements into overdrive, as many of us who previously worked in an office are now trying to figure out our rights and responsibilities in a workplace that is located in our homes. And it turns out that in the pandemic era, the flexibility of telecommuting has a dark side, constant surveillance. Hill paints a grim picture of the new innovations on employee surveillance technology that companies are now deploying to track their workers at home. While surveillance in the workplace is as old as capitalism itself, surveillance of workers at home takes it to a new level. One type of surveillance software, brought to you by the brand Hubstaff, quote, tracks a worker's mouse movements, keyboard strokes, web pages visited, email, file transfers, and applications used, unquote. Another popular program, Time Doctor, quote, downloads videos employees' screens and uses a computer's webcam, which can take a picture of the employee every 10 minutes, unquote. A more low-key approach to monitoring workers every move is to force them to keep Zoom on all day so your boss can periodically peer through your webcam as you type away in that little square like a personal panopticon. Surveillance software goes hand-in-hand with health tracking systems that employers are using to screen workers for COVID-19 symptoms. Obviously, health screenings come with the best of intentions, but amassing copious amounts of data seems more like low-grade terrorization. The companies that churn out the software are seeing their sales soar, which suggests that many employers may see this as a worthwhile investment for the long term, as more of their office jobs migrate to the home permanently. So could this be our new normal? Instead of being liberating, the new telework feels increasingly like a dystopian digital penitentiary, shackling workers to their laptops as they churn out their so-called deliverables. Hill points out that the law makes it fairly easy for a boss to legally spy on its workers, thanks to antiquated pre-internet laws that do not account for the possibilities of mobile computing and communications that make telework so popular today. Of course, most jobs are not suited to telework, and in the context of the pandemic, we should remember that it's the relatively privileged workers who can't afford to stay home and work remotely and avoid the public health risks of COVID-19. This doesn't mean that the roughly 42% of workers who are now teleworking, a massive increase from the pre-pandemic era, are not facing different risks under this work regimen. Hill says the oppressive climate created by the new telework surveillance state is leading to growing anxiety and alienation. He writes, quote, The reality of this constant Big Brother digital spying in people's homes is that dozens of remote workers are starting to complain that they feel burned out by this pressure. A recent fishbowl survey of major companies' employees found that three-quarters of those polled were opposed to using an app or device that allows their company to trace their contacts with colleagues. Yet many fear they will be branded as troublemakers or lose their jobs if they speak out, unquote. So pretty much the same fears that workers seem to face in a traditional workplace have simply migrated to our living rooms. Meanwhile, workers are increasingly isolated from each other, which undercuts the only tool of resistance available to many of them, collective action. Hill notes that, Quote, since remote workers hardly see each other and increasingly may not even know many of their co-workers, these factors will make labor organizing and collective worker empowerment increasingly challenging, unquote. Surveillance is one through line that both professional and blue-collar workers have in common. A recent study by the Open Markets Institute found that workers at Amazon warehouses were subject to systematic surveillance through technology that tracked their productivity and performance constantly and left many workers fearful and miserable. The rise of this labor surveillance infrastructure brings up questions about the so-called future of work, when our lives may be increasingly based not around a physical workspace, but an online platform. We've already seen the consequences of online gig work with the expansion of platforms like Mechanical Turk, which run a whole legion of low-wage workers doing digital piecework in isolation under the intense pressure of deadlines from clients they never see. When teleworking at home, if you're facing the constant possibility of being watched by your boss, you begin to self-regulate your behavior to start limiting the number of bathroom trips and coffee breaks you take, to stop posting on social media, or putting on a fake smile just to avoid looking bored. This type of surveillance, the greatest impact of which is the chilling effect it induces, rather than the direct command and control of labor per se, may be rapidly exacerbating the alienation of labor. First, there's the alienation between people working from home and the people who still have to go out to work every day in factories and fields and retail outlets. That's one divide. And there's also the fracturing within workforces, in which individuals may never see or talk to their co-workers except through conversations mediated by supervisors over a video conference. Hill concludes, quote, worker advocates must push for a strong and modern legal data protection framework. And that should include an effective enforcement system against privacy abuse that creates a disincentive against illegal spying behavior. Remote work should not become a downward slide towards a big brother panopticon that penetrates into society ever more deeply, including into our homes, unquote. Yet I fear this emerging, more subtle kind of panopticon through telework may be something that employees feel that they have no choice but to, quote, voluntarily participate in.
Though Hill's piece doesn't project far into the future, it's not too much of a stretch to envision a system of work in which surveillance is used first to dehumanize people and then to render them completely obsolete. Automation, after all, would certainly simplify things for bosses. Workers would not need to be monitored constantly if they are programmed to do exactly what they are told all the time. We should be aware that the next time we voluntarily log our browsing history into our boss's teleworking spyware, although it might seem like the boss is monitoring you because you're a valuable asset as an employee, because they want to optimize your productivity, in reality, it's the same old Tayloristic game. And when the surveillance reaches through your laptop into your home, it's no longer simply about improving your performance. It's about making sure you know your place, no matter where you are. We talked to postal workers on episode 204 a few weeks ago, and the postal service crisis is ongoing, but the workers continue to fight back. Jacob Bogage at the Washington Post has a piece up titled, Postal Service Workers Quietly Resist DeJoy's Changes with Eye on Election, describing the ways those rank-and-file workers are pushing back on attempts to destroy the postal service. Louis DeJoy, a crony of Trump's and GOP fundraiser extraordinaire with no qualifications for running a massive public service, came in looking to slash and burn the agency. Bogage notes, quote, though he put some of those efforts on hold after public backlash and four federal judges have since issued temporary injunctions on all operational changes, DeJoy has deeper cuts in store. He told lawmakers last month to expect dramatic changes after the November election, including reductions in service and price increases for Americans in rural areas, end quote. But for now, the postal workers are doing what they can to fight back all of the sabotage from the top. Quote, mechanics in New York drew out the dismantling and removal of mail sorting machines until their supervisor gave up on the order. In Michigan, a group of letter carriers did an end run around a supervisor's directive to leave election mail behind, starting their routes late to sift through it. In Ohio, postal clerks culled prescriptions and benefit checks from bins of stalled mail to make sure they were delivered, while some carriers ran late items out on their own time. In Pennsylvania, some postal workers look for any excuse, a missed turn, heavy traffic, a rowdy dog, to buy enough time to finish their daily rounds, end quote. So in other words, postal workers are doing even more work and some of this probably unpaid work in order to make sure that we continue to have the service we rely on. The attempts to streamline the postal service have been going on for a long time, as we discussed on that episode not long ago. Bipartisan attempts to shrink it as a prelude to handing over more and more mail services to private companies go back most obviously to 2006 and much further, in fact, to a 1970 reorganization of the service that was a prelude to the neoliberal revolution in many ways. At 15, postal workers told Bogage of low morale at their workplaces, but also the intent to keep fighting. One New Jersey letter carrier told him, quote, people are burned out. I haven't been this burned out in a long time, and I've been doing this a long time. We've never had a summer like this. I tell my customers, call your congressman because I'm being told not to deliver your mail. Bogage continued, quote, new postal workers are introduced to the agency's unofficial motto within their first days on the job, every piece, every day. It's, referred, it's referenced so frequently that EPED is shorthand to work faster or longer when mail piles up. Any conscious effort to delay mail is, under federal law, punishable by fine and as much as five years of imprisonment. Many postal workers see the changes that slowed mail as violating the spirit, if not the letter, of that law. They view themselves as couriers of prescription medications, paychecks, bills, and more, and also as neighbors to the people on their routes, checking in on elderly residents and delivering life's necessities. The coronavirus has only magnified that sense of responsibility, they say. End quote. I cannot get over, over and over and over again, how well the people who work in public services understand and perceive their job as serving the public, as caring about the public, as being part of the fabric that holds a community together. And especially these days, as those communities are stretched really thin with, I mean, even before the pandemic, we were stretched really thin. Now people are even more isolated. And your postal worker might be the only person you see in a day. And of course, just like every other attack on public services, these cuts to the postal service and those workers who are fighting really hard to keep the service going are disproportionately been people of color for a long time. The postal service has long been a source of stable work for black workers locked out of other options. And so cuts to the postal service disproportionately affect people of color and the working class. Bogage notes, quote, in Michigan, one postal worker considered the removal of public mailboxes 
which are subject to periodic checks to ensure they're being used as disproportionately affecting people of color. When a collection box is removed in a wealthy suburb, residents have the time and resources to push back, said the carrier, who is Black. But when it's removed in a racially diverse working class neighborhood, it's just another government service that's been clawed back. It's kind of like everything else. It wasn't built for us, the worker said of the Postal Service and its relationship with Black people, end quote. Postal workers' responses, Bogage wrote, varied from insubordination to small acts of neighborly heroism. But there's one thing that's clear. They need more backup from the rest of us. That is all we have time for this week. Stay tuned for much more on the Postal Service on unemployment and gig employment and employment safety and all the other things you do on the job. Thanks as always to the good folks at Descent for hosting us for so many years now, to Natasha Lewis and now Colin Kinneberg for editing us, and most importantly, as always, to you for listening to us, sharing us with your friends, tweeting about us, talking about us, writing to us, sharing your stories with us. Special thanks to those of you who are sustaining members of the podcast over either at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org slash belabored, or on our Patreon page with shiny new rewards over at patreon.com slash belabored. We absolutely understand that money is tight for people. We have just spent an entire episode talking about it. But if you do happen to have some spare income and want to keep us bringing you coverage of that unemployment crisis, we have some gorgeous Molly Crabapple worker portraits for our highest tier donors. And you can always find out more about us at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org slash belabored. If you want to share your story of work under coronavirus, you can, as always, email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. If you are in work or out of it, if you've gone down to part-time or taken up a side hustle, if you are a garment worker or service worker or any other kind of worker, we want to hear from you. You can always tweet at us too at hashtag belabored. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.